Welcome to the New Life Philly Podcast. Every week, we share fresh insights as we explore the inexhaustible depths of the Word of God. We pray that you will be encouraged and challenged today as we continue in our study. Let's join in now. Bless you all. How are you doing this morning? Almost afternoon. Um, We are grateful for um, a great week since Resurrection Day. How many of you had a great time in the Lord last Sunday? Amen. 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 Uh, God was definitely moving in this place and he continues to move even now. He continues to move um, even now. Um, So yesterday uh, we revealed the name of our expectant young one. Uh, My wife, Lisa, is eight months pregnant and I uh, would just like to tell you the name. Is that okay? Can I tell you guys our next son's name? <laughs> All right. Uh, <laughs> uh, so I'll tell you, Jude's name, um, our firstborn, is Jude Mambo Brown. And Mambo is uh, Lisa's family's surname. Uh, was the last name of her grandfather, uh, Crispin Mambo, and he is a chief. Um, back in the area in which he comes from in Tanzania. And uh, our son, we're going to keep that tradition of a middle name uh, being African, um, and his name will be Luke Shaga Brown, as in Shaga Zulu. So many of you may have heard of Shaga Zulu, um, one of the fiercest warriors and conquerors in the history of the world. Um, And our prayer is that he will be both Luke, a light bringer, and Shaka, a conqueror. So uh, that is our hope. Um, If you could stand on your feet and, uh, and pray with me. Dear Heavenly Father, God, we thank you so much for this day. Lord, we're grateful for your love, your light, your care, your concern for us, your people, um, how you love on us, how you choose us to go about into this world, following you into this world on mission. I pray, Lord, that today we would make little and tiny decisions to help further our commitment to each other, into the city of Philadelphia, Father God. So I pray, Lord, um, for this service as we continue here, for this word that you would speak through me um, so that people might see you and not just me. In the precious name, Jesus, we pray. Amen. If you remain standing as we'll get to our text, which is Jeremiah 32. All right. And we'll read responsively. I'll read just the regular text. As the bold comes up, you'll read. Okay. All right. This is the word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord in the 10th year of Zedekiah, king of Judah, which was the 18th year of Nebuchadnezzar. The army of the king of Babylon was then besieging Jerusalem and Jeremiah, the prophet, was confined in the courtyard of the guard in the royal palace of Judah. OK, it didn't translate. You guys read. <laughs> now, Zedekiah. Say, this is what the Lord says. I'm not to give this city 
Did I go back? Hit the wrong one. There we go. Jeremiah said, the word of the Lord came to me. Hanamel, son of uh, Shalom, your uncle is going to come to you and say, buy my field at Anathoth, because as Nir's relative, it is your right and duty to buy it. Then, just as the Lord had said, my cousin Hanamel came to me in the courtyard of the guard and said, buy my field at Anathoth in the territory of Benjamin, since it is your right to redeem it and possess it, buy it for yourself. You can read. presence, I gave Baruch these instructions. This is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel says. Take these documents, both the sealed and unsealed copies of the deed of purchase, and put them in a clay jar so they will last a long time. For this is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel says, houses, fields, and vineyards will again be bought in this land. See how the siege ramps are built up to take the city. Because of the sword, famine, and plague, the city will be given into the hands of the Babylonians who are attacking it. What you said has happened, as you now see. Let's read this last verse together. This is what the Lord says, As I have brought all this great calamity on this people, so I will give them all the prosperity I have promised them. Amen. You may be seated. Today we're going to be engaging on a topic, hope for the city. Hope for the city. I'm sure you've maybe heard this song before. This land is your land. This land is my land, from California to the New York Island, from the Redwood Forest to the Gulf Stream waters. Even if you don't know all the lyrics, you can finish it out. This land was made for you and me. Uh, These lyrics in many ways qualify and describe uh, the American experience for many Americans, especially those who benefit from privilege. Generational privilege, racial privilege, gender privilege, economic privilege. The the song lyrics, they follow the dynamic changes between the different terrains and climates of America that, that point to and symbolize diversity of thought, philosophy, and the traditions of different Americans. Uh, the sentiment is uh, that, that though some Americans may have different and contrasting ways of thinking, there is still largely equal personhood among them. There are those who are fiscally liberal, fiscally conservative, 
socially liberal, socially conservative. In this country, there are progressives and conservatives and libertarians. The truth is, despite the complexity of political, economic, and social diversity, the the truth is that the most who benefit from being part of a privileged status have not had to wonder whether or not this is their land. But for those who are subject to the collective experience of being othered in America, there's not been a question. There is a question, excuse me. For those who bear the weight of historical otheredness, they must wonder, is this my land? That refrain, this land is your land. This land is my land. See, the chorus of the song speaks to the beauty and the grandeur of America, a picture of American idealism. However, when we examine the true history and and origin of the song, we would discover that the songwriter, a a man by Woody Guthrie, he was born in Oklahoma. And uh, and, and he wrote this, he was born in Oklahoma in 1912, and he wrote this song not as a portrait of, of what America was in his day, but he wrote the song as a dream about what America could be. It, it may surprise you to learn that, that, that Woody Guthrie, the, 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 the author, the, the, the man who penned uh, this folk song, was a communist sympathizer. Yeah, he was a commie. No, no, no. That's a step too far. But if you were to read the whole lyrics and read a verse of the unreleased version, perhaps, you would understand that his vision of America was better than his experience in America. His reach and his imagination for what could be in his mind exceeded his grasp of reality. See, the verse in the unreleased version goes like this. There was a big high wall there that tried to stop me. The sign was painted, said private property. But on the backside, it didn't say nothing. This land was made for you and me. The sentiment was that Woody Guthrie had a picture in his mind of crossing over human-made boundaries of difference. And that beyond that boundary was a common man dream of justice and equality that was not subject to any kind of exclusive or restrictive labels. So despite your opinions of what his philosophy may be, this, my friends, is hope. See, I'm not blind to the fact that, you know, Woody Guthrie's prophetic vision of America probably didn't involve his own imagining of racial reconciliation or racial equality, social justice on behalf of numerous different types of marginalized classes. But what's plain to see is that if America is to rise and live up to the true meaning of its creed, that that hope of all its people, not just Men, but women, not just the rich and the middle class, but also the poor, not just whites, but blacks, Asians, Hispanics, Latinos, and all other people who make this country great. That hope from all of us is foundational. Although a do not enter sign may appear above the door that leads to a land of prosperity, equality, and liberty for many minorities, there's a kind of collective hope. That's a door buster 
And it pursues the future vision that is beyond the restrictions of this present reality. I'm talking about hope. Our theological emphasis for today is about biblical hope, which is the confident expectation of God to fulfill on his promises because of our reliance on his goodness and faithfulness. And if the church is to lead in hope now, justice, reconciliation, restoration, those are places and spaces in which the church in America must be devoted, not because it makes good business sense, but because it makes every bit of godly sense. You see, I know I might be preaching to the choir this morning, but I just stopped by to remind you a congregation that has planted themselves in the city, a congregation that remains in the city. I just stopped by to remind you and reinforce to you today that the reason this church still exists in this community is because there is an irresistible hope for the city that is among us. That amidst a narrative contrived or real of rising crime, violence in the city, amidst the exacerbation of a growing wealth gap in our city between the haves and have-nots, amidst the desolation many have ascribed to blocks and corners of our great city, there is hope. And such is the context of our scripture today. You see, on the whole, the prophet book of Jeremiah is one of great affliction. You read all the chapters and you might come away feeling pretty dumbfounded about how much suffering is going on. The pronouncing of judgment on the people of God for their failure time and time again to keep their end of the covenant. Promises they made to God as a result of the promises he made to them. They broke them. So there's a pronouncement of judgment. So much of the book of of Jeremiah is the prophet declaring this impending judgment on the nation on account of their sin and disobedience. Yet in in a few chapters, chapters 30 through 33, uh, uh, we find a sequence of verses that scholars have titled Jeremiah's book of comfort or consolation. It's uh, 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 that God will orchestrate a great reversal. Uh, Destruction will give way to restoration. Exile becomes homecoming. Grief is replaced by joy. So in this, we look in particular at chapter 32, where we find a a, a peculiar story that kind of crystallizes the hope of the gospel in the new covenant. The church stands in the gap. So uh, there's a land in crisis in chapter 32. Uh, it's it's setting the the context here. And in in verse one, the text tells us that the word of the Lord comes to Jeremiah and and it's in what we understand was a time of crisis, not only for the city of Jerusalem, because war had had come to its gates, but also a time of crisis for the man, Jeremiah, whom the king had imprisoned and detained in the palace courtyard. Isn't it interesting that At a time of crisis for the city and at a time of personal pain and anguish for Jeremiah, God has a word of hope for a hopeless situation. 
You see, the betrayal of the scene lets us know that although the prophet of God is bound, the word of God is not. Just as the apostle Paul would later exhort centuries later. You see, too many of us, when our country, when our our community faces its most difficult times, when racial tensions run high, we, we lose the perspective that in spite of the plans of men, good or evil. It is the word of God that has the final authority. You may be facing discipline on the job. A teacher may have labeled you a failure. You may be facing a surgery the doctor says is 50-50. You you may even have written off your own self, given up on yourself. But despite what man says, despite what you might say about yourself, it is God who has the final word. Just came by this morning to tell you that the word of God is not stopped. It's not hindered by human circumstances, not hindered by human situations, but endures throughout all generations, remains vibrant, remains relevant, remains impactful, even in the most extreme of conditions. It is both terrible and beautiful. In the scriptures, we find both calm and calamity. And in the thriving city, the word can speak in the dying city and it can speak in the thriving city. It can speak. The word speaks. It's the final authority, the word of God. The city is under siege. History tells us Babylon had already carried out a siege of Jerusalem in 598 B.C. in which they then had captured the city and carried away many of its inhabitants into exile. Now, 12 years later, the city had still been on operation under the hand of Babylon, a fragile, a contentious relationship between these two sides. And many of those in Jerusalem had felt the burden, the yoke of oppression from the Babylonians. They sought out human alliances that would help to free them from the yoke of political, financial, emotional Mental bondage to the king of Babylon. The Egyptians had come to the aid of Israel. They had provided some temporary relief from the ongoing siege of the army of Babylon. But guess what? Egypt was not equipped. They were not able to provide the the, the kind of complete deliverance from the onslaught of Babylon that Israel needed. There is something disappointing when your help can't give enough help. Too often we seek the help of limited resources of human alliances. Human alliances will crumble over time. Human alliances will fold under pressure. And too often we forget about the limitless resources of our divine alliance. Although we should seek redemption relationships, although we should be seeking influence in things like the political arena and others, those pursuits are not the ultimate source of our help. Only God is. So we have a city in siege and we have a prophet imprisoned. 
See, we get a grasp of, of what's going on in this passage from a, a citywide but, and also national level that, that there's looming disaster and devastation that God is happening, allow, allowing to happen to Israel. But at the same time, there, there's not simply a citywide siege, but there's a personal siege going on to this suffering prophet. Don't you know that's what they call Jeremiah, the suffering prophet? Prophet. He had been prophesying to Israel for over 40 years at this point, prophesying against their, uh, about their needed repentance, about their needed obedience, and about the consequences of their rebellion against God. He, he's like that preacher who's always in your ear preaching that fire and brimstone message. Yet people have not been ridiculing Jeremiah for years because he's loud or obnoxious. But they've been ridiculing this this prophet of God because the truth with which he speaks exposes them, exposes the, the fault lines of their false religious motivations and pierces the God sized void in their souls. So now we find this ridiculed prophet, this suffering prophet locked up because he would not keep the word of the Lord himself and it's in prison that God comes to him with yet another word don't you ever get tired of doing what the Lord asks you to do faithfully serving and then you've been through the muck and the mire circumstance after circumstance health issue after health issue problem with kid after problem with kid academics, money is funny. All those things go wrong, still faithfully serving. Then God asks in the midst at your lowest point, I require something else of you. We figured I could have saved myself a lot of time if I would have just kept my mouth shut. If I would have just stayed to myself, not worried about the conditions of the church or people in my life group or, or my family members, if I didn't ask that invasive question, I wouldn't be responsible for the burden uh, of sharing, you know, the cares and concerns of those people. I wouldn't have to go into that. But God is saying at your lowest point to Jeremiah, I have something else for you to do. There's another word. So this vision and the command come from the Lord. Jeremiah said, the word of the Lord came to me. Hanamel, son of Shalom, I'm sorry, Shalom, your uncle, is going to come to you and say, buy my field at Anathoth because as nearest relative, it is your right and duty to buy it. <laughs> this is a peculiar vision and a strange request Jeremiah has no rational reason why he ought to tie himself up on this property. He's in prison, number one, and he's being asked to dole out money. We can suppose that this, this offer or proposal perhaps had been made to other cousins who weren't in prison. Perhaps other family members who, who had more money than Jeremiah had. This request to buy land at this time in particular was a seemingly worthless venture and investment. There was devastation on the lands of Israel as the city was under siege. There was, 
the timing in Jeremiah's life while he's in prison, his, 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 his own future is uncertain, looks desperate and bleak. And that just begs the question for us, has God ever asked you to do something that you felt unable to do? You felt like you couldn't or even you didn't want to do it because it felt like life was already too hard. So Jeremiah, like many of us, had been frustrated, abused, disrespected, and had suffered in a way in which few other godly prophets had suffered. Yet in the midst of trouble, God makes clear. Despite him being detained in prison, he was still in a position to redeem the land and the fortunes of his family. So laying aside the concern about his welfare, Jeremiah is charged to act on behalf of his family despite his undesirable circumstance. So his vision comes to pass. Then just as the Lord had said, my cousin Hanamel came to me in the courtyard of the guard and said, Buy my field at Anathoth in the territory of Benjamin, since it is your right to redeem it and possess it. Buy it for yourself. So first God tells Jeremiah that his his cousin will come to him asking to buy back the land for his family. When this vision actually comes to pass in verse eight, uh, we see that Jeremiah doesn't hesitate. He immediately begins to put things in place to purchase the land as what God had said was to come to pass, had come to pass. And Jeremiah is convinced of what to do next. Isn't it something that at sometimes God makes it so clear to us? what the very next thing to do is. And he tells us what the signs are going to be. But still, even when he puts the plans in motion, sometimes we hesitate. In his book, Ministries of Mercy, Tim Keller said, and I'll summarize that, when you see that, that God ha has married these, these three things, a burden, an opportunity, and the resources to do something, it's an indication of God's will for you to act upon it. Burden, opportunity, resources, don't wait, move. So Jeremiah, he, he purchases the field. And y'all know that good old saying about real estate, location, location, location. Pastor Tim knows about that form of real estate. Location matters. And this is probably one of the most foolish and lopsided real estate deals of all time. Because the key piece in the real estate deal, in any real estate deal, is the value of the land and the value of the property. So one, he's saying buy, buy a field, so there's no property. This ain't buy the land. A land which is under siege by a foreign government. When the foreign government does take over, Who's to tell what their redistribution will look like? You sign paperwork, got all the stuff, hands, hands done, all right, transaction's over. I know that when this is over, I'll get to be, no, we don't know how they'll redistribute the land. Whether or not they'll draw up new, new signs or whatever. He buys a field without any idea of what it will look like on the other side of this siege. 
I heard somebody one time talk about this passage and they talked about the principle of anticipation in real estate. The concept of the principle is that the value of the property today is largely dependent on the value of future gain or income from the property. But Jeremiah was not abiding by this rule. This purchase for a piece of land in a town that has probably already been overthrown by the Babylonian army. Brothers, sisters, here today in our city, there are blocks, whole streets, neighborhoods that uh, that majority culture would look at and see little to no value. There are areas of our city that remain devastated, where from the, from the migration of industrial centers overseas, the drug, drug epidemics in the 80s and 90s, many of our neighborhoods are lacking the infrastructure to support entrepreneurship and economic growth. Our neighborhood schools have become prep schools, uh, but not for colleges, but for prisons. Yet God is charging us today and speaking to us from a passage that while it is over 2,500 years old, it completely remains relevant for us and our city today. That just like he charged Jeremiah to purchase land in a desolate place of Anathoth, he wants us to plant our feet, to purchase land, invest in schools that might look dreary, invest in the streets that may look crooked, invest in the homes that may appear desolate. God is saying to Jeremiah, just as he is speaking to us, purchase the land at Anathoth. See, our Anathoth purchases is not for our own benefit. We ought to know by now that that we invest now. But especially with the church, we invest now for those that come behind us. That what others have sown, you and I have reaped that 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 we have reaped. Now we must continue to sow for for posterity's sake, for for the next generation, so that future generations can reap the benefits of the collective progress of reconciliation, the collective progress of restoration, spearheaded by the church in America. That should be part of our aims, part of our goals. This purchase of land was it was a bona fide sale. It was a legitimate business transaction. See, the focus and and concentration on the monetary and and legal characters of the sale, they, they underscore, they underpin the public and legal nature of Jeremiah's symbolic actions. This purchase, while appearing to while appearing to be simply foolish, it wasn't a joke. How do we know that? It wasn't sloppy or rushed. Silver is carefully weighed out. Let's look at the the transaction details. Jeremiah is showing that he is carefully considering and following all the legalities of a land purchase of that day. He's not skipping any steps. The attention to detail in this land purchase is all the more emphasized by the fact that the purchase includes a deed that is signed and sealed in the presence of of many witnesses much like a modern day notary put into a and then it was put into an earthenware vessel to show that the deed is preserved over a long period of time 
You see, we will invest in something because we have a hope that our investment will deliver a positive return. See, typically the size of our hope is indicated by the size of our investment. So here, Jeremiah is taking very seriously this land transaction and purchase. And the other thing we we must keep in mind is that although it appears foolish, he's taking it very seriously because he has a hope, perhaps, that's bigger than what people could anticipate. See, my son, Jude, he'll from time to time ask for candy or ask for a baked good or ask for cookies or whatever it may be. Right. And at first, he'll just ask regular. Daddy, can I have a cookie or daddy, can I have some candy? I'll be like, no, son, it's it's not breakfast time. You'll ruin your appetite. And then he'll say, but daddy, please. And he'll invest himself in the dramatics, in the hope that he will get a cookie or gummies. So his investment goes deeper based on the outcome of hoping for the same reward. Okay, that's the principle we're talking about here, that that if you invest yourself, it's indicative of how much hope you have. Small investment, small hope. See, but Jeremiah's hope is rooted in this promise from God in verse 15. For this is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says. Houses, fields, and vineyards will again be bought in this land. (laughs) If there's anything else that you try to build your hope upon, it should be a promise from God. (laughs) You can try to build your, your hope on anything else. You can try relationships. You can try cash, you can try cars, you can try career success, any of those things, go ahead. You can try to build your hope on those particular things. But for me, a song says, my hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust a sweeter frame, but wholly lean on Jesus, saying, on Christ the solid rock I stand, all other ground is seeking stand. You got to make it personal in here today. My hope is built on nothing less. Men and women make promises and break them. No matter who they are, fathers, mothers, sisters, brothers, husbands, wives, friends. You see, this is purchase of land symbolized a down payment on the future of Israel. It will be less than a year from this point, from this story, that the walls of Jerusalem will be torn down in the siege by the Babylonians, that the temple of the Lord God would be set ablaze and burned down, that Jerusalem would be left in ruins and many again would be carried off into exile far away in Babylon for close to 70 years. Yet this moment, and as a result, For for 70 years of exile, father and mother would teach son and daughter about Jeremiah's purchase. This transaction gave the Israelites something that unlike a destroyed temple, 
unlike devastated lands, could never be totally burned down or extinguished. God, whose promises never fail, has given them hope. Houses and fields and vineyards shall again be bought in this land. So Jeremiah hears all this from the Lord, and then he goes about making this housing purchase. And then he begins to exhort the Lord about all the great things that he has done, esteeming him by calling him, uh, by, by recalling his great acts on behalf of the people from the Exodus and so forth. Can't you recall the, the times over your life when God has delivered you from, from mental, financial, emotional, and spiritual bondage? One of my favorite songs, Lift Every Voice and Sing, says, God of our weary years, God of our silent tears, God who has brought us thus far on the way. See, Jeremiah goes on to present a, a picture then of their disaster. So he sets up this praise of God and then he, then he counterbalances, it, counterbalances it with this, this charge of God, uh, uh, their circumstances and their impending devastation. See, verse 24 says, how the siege ramps are built up to take the city. Because of the sword, famine and plague, the, the city will be given into the hands of the Babylonians. What you said has happened as you now see. So for these 29 previous chapters and how the, the book of Jeremiah ends, we talked about this great affliction, these great consequences for the people of God for their sin and disobedience. And Jeremiah is saying, it's here. And then he's devastated by it. That next verse he says, and though the city will be given into the hands of the Babylonians, you, sovereign Lord, say to me, buy the field with silver? And have the transaction witnessed? God, don't you understand what's happening around me? Yet you call me in that moment to take care of this silly transaction? I only did it because you told me to do it. And I obeyed you. But why did you tell me to do it? Can't we just be honest with God sometimes? Just about how silly, how, how mundane, how insignificant, God, you can make things seem sometimes when all else is going on around me. In the middle of our faith walk, in the middle of carrying out exactly what God had, has called us to do, we can find ourselves questioning the way forward, lost in misery, Lost in the frustration of the present. Have you run out of prayer before getting to the petition? In other words, are, are, are there moments when things look so bad that regardless of your level of intimacy or spiritual maturity with God, you don't even know what or how to pray? But this passage encourages us today that, that when we have come to the end of what we can do, we have only come to the beginning of what God can do. Mm. 
See, God declares the extent to which he is involved in both the destruction and the desolation. But he emphasizes his ability to control and direct all outcomes as as he responds to Jeremiah's request. God declares the endless range of his power, his sovereignty. And he says in verse 27, is anything too hard for God? It's he who gives the city over to the Babylonians and Nebuchadnezzar. God owns up to the calamity that he has brought upon Jerusalem for their disobedience. But then in verses 36 through 41, he also owns the prevailing endurance of his everlasting promises to his people because of his great love. Verse 42, he says this. This is what the Lord says. As I have brought all this great calamity on this people, so I will give them all the prosperity I have promised them. Once more, fields will be bought in this land of which you say it is a desolate waste. Without people or animals, for it has been given into the hands of the Babylonians. Fields will be bought for silver. Deeds will be signed. Sealed and witnessed in the territory of Benjamin, in the villages around Jerusalem, in the towns of Judah, and in the towns of the hill country of the western foothills and of the Negev, because I will restore their fortunes, declares the Lord. The hope is secured by the legitimacy of the purchase. So whether traversing our city blocks or parading through our suburban squares, we are faced with the reality of human suffering, human difference, human intolerance, racism, discrimination, and prejudice. And we, come, we become more aware that our lands in many ways are barren. They're desolate, no matter where we are. And sometimes as Christians, we can become so consumed on the impending judgment of God on this world that we'll often sit back in observance, become innocent bystanders rather than engaging the the problems of this world. We'll grab up and write our articles grabbing a critical pen instead of lifting out a hand to a hurting hand. But God calls us out of even our own personal situations, aware of the impending doom, aware of the crisis, and he commissions us to still exercise hope. Our commission is not to direct people to life's fire escape, but to instruct them that in order to escape the peril and the danger of this world that does consume like fire, we must direct them to the water, to the river of life, to the man who is the everlasting well. I stopped by here this morning to tell you, and then I'll take my seat, that 2,600 years ago, Jeremiah sown a purchase of land that was meant to give hope to generations of people who have been exiled from their land. These people had to endure decades of attempted genocides, homicides, a people who were subject to pestilence and famine, a people who had to endure plots and conspiracies in a foreign land that were meant to systematically destroy them and take them out. 
And this purchase of land was a symbol of hope for restoration and that they will return to the promised land. In short, this purchase said that their trouble would not last always. The silver was weighed and counted for purchase. The deed was drafted, signed, sealed in the presence of witnesses. It was then put into an earthenware vessel to keep it preserved. That was this transaction in Jeremiah 32. But there was another land transaction that I think we ought to talk about that over 2,000 years ago, there was a deed that was drafted not for one singular piece of land, but there was a deed that was drafted for this whole wide world that Jesus, the God-man, purchased the deed to this fallen, devastated, and desolated world. One that was devastated and desolated by xenophobia, homophobia, racism, sexism, classism, every other kind of ism that creates schisms and divisions in humanity. The price of this deed was not cheap. Its currency was death. In this transaction, the deed was signed in his own blood. I'm talking about Jesus. And it was sealed by the power of the resurrection. And, and also this, this transaction back in Jeremiah 32 had to happen in the presence of many witnesses. And, and those witnesses testified to the legitimacy of the transaction. Well, well, who testifies to this particular transaction? Guess what? It's you and me, brothers and sisters, that we carry inside of us. We are earthenware vessels that preserve the message and the gospel and the hope of glory that Jesus came into this world and he purchased it with his blood, sealed the redemption of the world with his resurrection. And you and me will testify through Throughout all eternity, we will, every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. We carry with us in clay jars this message, this hope, the hope of glory. Jesus is the hope of the world. No matter what your age, race, gender, or nationality might be, Jesus is the answer to dream bigger. Imagine greater, and he's the source of our best hope for, fu for future restoration, redemption, and the healing of our world. Let's pray. God, we thank you so much that you are able to give us hope for the most desolate of places. Sometimes that desolation is an area, is a piece of land. Sometimes it's an organization like a school. Sometimes it's a church. Sometimes it's our very hearts. But Lord, you have the ability to redeem all of those particular areas. And I pray, Lord, that we would put our hope in you and participate and follow you into this world. I pray all these things in your matchless name, Jesus Christ.
Amen. We hope that you've been blessed today by the preaching of God's Word. Join us every week for fresh insights on the New Life Philly podcast. If you would like to reach out to our church for more information, or if there's some way we can pray for you, please visit newlifephilly.net or email newlife at newlifephilly.net. May the Lord richly bless you this week.